Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. This week's episode is a live recording from our Killers of the Flower moon screening in person with Best Actress Oscar nominee, Lily Gladstone. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hi again, I'm Anna Smith and I was delighted to host this Q&A with Lily Gladstone soon after her Oscar nomination for Killers of the Flower Moon, which is on Apple TV Plus now. Martin Scorsese's film tells the shocking true story of Oklahoma's Osage murders. Due to the oil on their land, the Native American Osage became some of America's wealthiest citizens, but white settlers started to infiltrate the community. Robert De Niro plays a sinister Hale who will do anything to gain control of the land. I've known Molly and her sister since they were little girls running around making a lot of trouble. <laughs> we ain't one more much. Echo. <laughs> Molly's dear departed father, Nikaise Y, was a dear, dear friend of mine, a beloved friend of the heart. He always used to tell the white men just to call him Jimmy, but I always called him by his proper name, Nikaise Y. We had great respect for each other. Lily plays Osage heiress Molly Kyle, opposite Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart, and she is the first Native American to be nominated for a Best Actress Oscar. Hello again. So once again, I'm Anna Smith, and I am now absolutely delighted to welcome to the stage the wonderful Lily Gladstone. Welcome, Lily. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome oh, happy to, to be here. Thank Girls you. on Film podcast. Everyone's just seen the film, of course. I think we've got rapturous applause there. So obviously, still, yeah, finding that incredibly moving. Congratulations on your Oscar nomination. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know where you were when you found out. I was on the Osage Reservation. I <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I was in Oklahoma anyway and uh, decided I wanted to stick around and uh, be as close to Molly as I could if the announcement came in the way that it did. But I was on FaceTime also with my parents, a little north of Seattle. And um, yeah, it was really, it was sweet. I, I asked my mom, you know, of course she did. Um, I probably would have too, but you know, she was filming the TV <laughs> so I could see the announcement. And I was like, mom, I can't even read it. Turn the camera around. I want to like, I want to learn by you and dad's reaction. Oh, that's lovely. So, um, yeah, thank you, Apple, for your great background noise cancellation. I couldn't hear the TV say my name, but I did see my parents react to the news. So that's how I found out. Well, how did you feel at that moment? Just in this the whole campaigning um, circuit, you kind of get used to thing after thing after thing. And it's like it's, it's busy, it's exciting, and then you move on to the next thing, which is busy and exciting. And then you kind of like uh, max out how many times you can be excited by something in one day. <laughs> Um, so I had anticipated that it was just, this is going to be new information today. I know what the next phase of campaigning is going to be going to look like or whatever. And I'm so grateful that I, I thought to ask my mom to just frame her and my dad up because their reaction was one first time in a minute, you know, since I guess 
maybe can i don't know um or the globes i guess like that one too the globes felt more real because my mom was sitting next to me thank you um yeah i i just cried because i was my parents looked so happy and it just made me immediately all in one go remember them driving me to ballet lessons every saturday through you know switchbacks from uh, east glacier to kalispell round trip 160 180 miles just them committing so much being at all of my plays you know driving like like my dad driving this little uh, his his suburban his little like mountain man uh, wood chopping hunting rig full of little ballerinas from from Montana <laughs> out to Seattle so we could compete and all hopping out out of this big scary looking vehicle and for all the little Seattle ballerinas it just made me really happy that my parents were watching that little girl I once was grown up and part of all of this. It felt, yeah, it felt pretty amazing. They must be incredibly proud. Now, um, I first saw your work in the films of the great director Kelly Reichardt. Um, we love her on Girls on Film. We, we featured her before. Um, and is it right that's how Martin Scorsese first saw your work? Yeah, apparently. Um, <laughs> Marty told me later... And, you know, Ellen had said the same thing. Ellen Lewis, Marty's casting director. Ellen said that Marty, when they were preparing to make this film, Marty knew what would be demanded of whoever would have to play Molly, what kind of character she was, the way Grand drew her, the way the Osage community has continued to insist she was. Um, just he had a, he had a moment of, uh, I don't know, same moment I guess Kelly had, worry that they weren't going to find who they needed to do exactly what they needed for that role. But then Ellen said she found and showed Marty certain women, and what she told me is she said, uh, Marty, I think we're going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was really grateful after, because I'd been in the audition process for this film for a little over a year. Wow. And the first sides that I had seen in October of 2019... And I put them onto tape a month later because production rightfully went and did a locals casting call first within Osage County before taking it to other talent. But before they'd done that, I'd had a meeting with Ellen to kind of get myself amped up and preparing for what this audition would be. And I uh, saw Sides sometime around Thanksgiving that year. And... I don't know if there's any actors in the room, but you kind of get used to seeing dummy sides, sides that are constructed, you know, pages from the script that are um, not actually from the script. They're scenes that are constructed to see what an actor is capable of, even though it may never actually be in the film. A lot of times bigger productions will do it too, like Marvel always sends out dummy sides with character names that you don't know who you're auditioning for. Um, they just want to test you on camera because everything's on such lockdown there. But when I was reading these, I just remember kind of hoping they were dummy sides because they were um, long paragraphs uh, long monologues that Molly had that were highly expositional. In three pages, you learned about her sisters. You got the sense of her dynamic with her husband. You heard about like a few of the murders. And all of it was done in kind of this way where she was maybe suspicious of Ernest, and then he assuages her being charming, and then it's fine at the end. So it felt like a lot in a very short amount of time, which told me that she was probably a tertiary character in this adaptation, which kind of broke my heart, especially after having just read the book and seeing and reading a woman that filmically I felt I could do. Um, and I remember when I put down my first tape, I wasn't confident that I'd done any justice to who she was because 
also any actors in here will know those kinds of sides are really difficult to perform. You're, um, you're delivering information. You know, at that point, you're kind of a talking head in, in um, very period clothing. You know, it's um, so when I did come back around a year later with new sides that had moments for pauses, moments for beats, moments for thoughts to be on display, I was so relieved because it told me, again, Molly was now going to be a leading character. You can just tell from one scene. Um, for my first audition, that there was a lot more underneath it. It was the scene of Ernest and Molly having dinner together the first time when she's kind of giving him the 20 questions. Yeah, I just felt like this is something I could play, this is something I can do, and yeah, it felt, uh, felt a little like something Kelly Riker would have directed. I absolutely love that scene, and I think her character is so beautifully sort of built upon in that moment. And as sort of flagged early on by De Niro's character, there's so much power in silence. Um, and I think Molly uses that really well. Um, and your physical performance speaks volumes as well as your dialogue. Um, can you talk to me a bit about landing on those specific facial expressions? Because especially looking at you on the big screen in a film like this, it, it, you, you, so much is going on. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, got two answers for that. <laughs> um, when I was little, my dad uh, put it in my head. He called it the twinkle in my eye. He could tell when I was lying. So that told me from a young age I was highly readable. So gave me the impetus as a teenager to learn how to mask my expressions a little bit better. <laughs> But then uh, I think a lot of the gestural work that I absorbed came from Molly's granddaughter, Margie. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if Gran relied on Margie's pacing, you know, the way she thinks about things, kind of a little bit of her wryness, her wisdom, um, her humor, her intelligence, all of these things. All of these things that you can pull from the Molly he drew, you definitely see on display with Margie. And my first meeting with Margie, I was just, you know, not wittingly absorbing her, but she definitely showed up, particularly in that first dinner scene, particularly in a lot of those early flirtations with Ernest. He told me he was, he was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. No, I don't talk too much. Thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. Hong Pashi. What was that? Shomikasi. That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you because you've you sort of alluded to this, but um, what did you learn about the real life Osage women in preparing for this? You know, I'd, I'd heard it several times and most notably from our one of our key uh, liaisons to the community with the film, Brandy Lemon. She's a woman on Osage Congress from Gray Horse District, where this all takes place. Um, Osage are broken into three districts, uh, Pahuska, Hominy, and Gray Horse. Gray Horse is where this all happens. And each is slightly different. Gray Horse were the last community to arrive when Osage were relocated from Missouri. One thing that was imparted on me the way that Brandy put it was women at that time conducted themselves with the kind of decorum as if they were part of the royal family. The way you are in public is very proper. The way you hold yourself is very proudly. And really, like, it's always 
audience is and performance is always the last element that kicks you know a scene into um into hyperdrive of course but the step before that where i really feel a character land is in the wardrobe and um the way that molly wore her blanket as a traditional osage woman um you can kind of see it in this even though it's an argyle that actual blanket that i'm wearing in this photo was from the reign of terror it was from the tall chief family um eliza tall chief so over a hundred year old blanket that i'm wearing here that belonged to an Osage woman during the time. You have to hold yourself in a very specific way if that blanket's gonna fall correctly, you know, and uh, your arms, you know, I had ballet training when I was younger for a long time before I was an actress. It's like, all right, arms are kind of in first position to hold this blanket the way it should be. The broadcloth skirt, when you're tied into it with the butterfly fold pleat, the way that it's supposed to be, holds you up almost like a corset. It was very important. Because I feel like a lot of times, historically in film, when Indian women are depicted, we're very loose, we're very like casual, we're very like the way Western society would project onto the wild Indian. Um, really, we're highly protocoled people. We're very, very diligent about hygiene, about um, how we wear our hair, how we wear our jewelry, these these pins, these 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 bunch beads. Like I also learned very quickly from <laughs> Osage women that when you're in dress, you've got tons and tons of other women and aunties and people who love you and care about you constantly fudging with your blanket, making sure everything's straight, making sure everything's perfect. So the um, the regality and the decorum that particularly if you read the book Molly held on to. She held on to traditional Osage dress and decorum, more so than some of her sisters who were embracing the modernity. But even in that modern overlapping, it's kind of worn in that in that sense. And I was also really happy that we had these four sisters because Molly, just by nature, being this very regal, self-contained, self-possessed, like measured woman, could come across to some as this common stoic Indian trope. But then we had her sisters to bring the laughter, to bring the the, the looseness, to bring the humor, to bring um, you know, the the badass auntie to the screen. Um, and I was really grateful for that because there's a lot of steep mountains to climb when you're making a film like this. And I think undoing perspective and showing a, a, a wider range of who we are as human beings is ultimately what will humanize us in stories about our dehumanization, which is why we're able to care about histories like this in the way that we do after watching films like this. Before I cut to the audience, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the relationship between Molly and Ernest and your work with Leonardo DiCaprio in preparing for that. What kind of work did you do to establish what's a, what's a very ambiguous and con contradictory sort of relationship in many ways? Yeah, Leo and I knew that we had almost an impossible task ahead of us um, to get to the reality of what everybody was saying it was like between these two. And then the tricky thing is there is nobody left alive who remembered them as a couple. There's nobody alive that remembered Molly as an individual. People had a sense of earnest because he passed away in 1986, just three or four months after I was born. He had longevity in the community and he had like a, 
of course, a reputation, and it was known who he was. So he was like ostracized and kind of kept on the margins in a lot of ways, but he kept showing up, which showed us that the fact that after he got out of prison and moved back to Osage County, and Leo had seen in an interview, you know, when he was asked about Molly, all he said, yeah, she was a good one. Um, he insisted until the day he died that he loved her. And Molly, after the trial, people would bring him up and she would leave the room. She didn't, he was pretty much dead to her after that, even though there are accounts of them riding around together even after Ernest got back. The math doesn't really fully add up, but there's, there's other reasons that I won't extrapolate on too much. Marty had gone to, he had taken the invitation to go to a dinner that Gray Horse had put on for the filmmakers, for everybody in the community to kind of air some of their uh, hesitance and uh, worry about the film. And it was there that Margie stood up and said, what you have to remember is that Ernest and Molly loved each other, impossible as that may seem, or hard as that is to believe. So for Leo and I to crack into that, you know, we looked for that evidence and for me, I found likely the dynamic that would have existed between the two of them echoed in who their children would have been. So in asking around the community, people who do remember Lizzie and do remember Cowboy, Cowboy is Margie's father, they remember them as being very fun-loving and having this dynamic between the two of them where Cowboy would do something crazy and outlandish and inappropriate or say something you know, off-color just to get a rise out of his sister. And his sister would just... Oh, cowboy, <laughs> but kind of giggle. So I figured that must be an indicator of what their parents were like. And the fact that after Ernest had gotten out of prison and moved back, cowboy would go and pick his dad up and take him on rides around Osage County. He would excuse himself from what, whoever he was with and say, well, excuse me, I got to go pick up old dynamite now. Old dynamite was the nickname he gave his dad. <laughs> um... So that also shows you there was a strong family bond that survived implausibly even this. So eventually, I think their relationship got severed. Cowboy withdrew and stopped spending time with his dad when he got older. But um, when Leo and I were constructing it, just taking the leap of faith and just praying, I guess, or hoping and working to make this dynamic plausible... <laughs> Um, you know, we had the early sort of flirtation scene periods to help develop that, which is like, you know, that chemistry is a pretty effortless one, the goofy outlandish one making the self-possessed one crack. You know, that'll keep a couple together for decades. But uh, there were times when we doubted that we'd be able to do it or that we, sh that we were doing justice to the story by leaning into the love story too much because we also didn't want to let Ernest off the hook. But really how we knew it was working a lot of our scenes we would improvise and do several different ways five six seven different levels of suspicion love um, complacency uh, complicity guilt um, all of it what always survived as we were getting notes back from Thelma Schoonmaker, now the most nominated editor in Oscars history. <laughs> um, Thelma kept telling us what's working is when the love is real. So keep giving me more of that. Amazing. We've got time for a few questions. If you'd like to put your hands up and wait for the roving mic to come to you. Yes, um, in the second row there. Thank you. Your performance is amazing and beautiful. And I hope you win. Um, <laughs> My question is, I think what this film brings up is basically who tells which stories and which stories are brought to light. I'd be interested to know what indigenous stories would you like to see on the big screen and who would you trust to 
tell them, because I was listening to one of your interviews and you mentioned this amazing woman who established the first native bank and she, you know, she brought justice to the community and no idea about that. So I'm interested in which stories would you like to see? Thank you. Yeah, she's talking about Eloise Cabell, a Blackfeet banker who um, successfully sued the federal government for mismanagement of tribal trust funds. She was good friends with uh, my family and uh, rest her. <laughs> she passed away about 10, 10, 12 years ago. Stories like that, I, I feel like when they're in the hands of a great filmmaker, it's going to be a great film. When they're in the hands of a native filmmaker who is a great filmmaker, it's going to be a transformational one for everybody. And I feel like even though Killers of the Flower Moon was not in the hands of a native filmmaker, Marty was the right kind of filmmaker. And it's the challenge I would pose to all filmmakers who want to make films like this. Put your ego aside. It's like, you're great, yes, but that's going to be inherent to whatever art you make. What's going to make your film impactful and magnificent? What's going to turn it into this kind of, nobody's seen a film like this before. Marty was constantly changing the script because of what Osage people were saying to him. Um, I would argue that a lot of the script revisions, while Eric Roth and Marty share the writing credit, it was also written by Osage people, um, because Marty is a, is a director who his whole career has heavily leaned into character more than plot and into improvisation and allows the actors who are inhabiting these characters be the ones who show him what the world is. And that's one reason that his films are so exciting and dynamic and a gift for any actor to work on. Some of the most notable moments in the film, which have survived and translated into the trailer, which really tells you, it's like, okay, these are words that are drawing audiences into theaters. Um, Everett Waller, who plays assistant chief Paul Redigal in the roundhouse when he's the one talking about how we didn't, we never asked for the good life, we just asked for life. And when, um, when Osage uh, dies, don't let them die alone or don't let them go alone, that whole rousing speech, that was Everett in the moment improv, like the whole thing, none of that was written. Everett has spent his life talking about Osage survival, about the reign of terror in communities around Indian country, speaking this way. I mean, that's that's a little just how Everett is. A lot of Osages kind of giggle about it when they watch it because it's just so Everett on screen. But also Yancey, Yancey Redcorn, who plays Chief Bonacastle. You've got this delegation of Osage leadership really <laughs> kind of cross-examining Tom White to make sure his intentions were good. You have Yancey talking about the Boxer Rebellion and how he fought in the Boxer Rebellion, and if he could see his enemy, he would kill them, but you can't see our enemy here. Yancey went off book and improvised that in his audition, and the filmmakers, Marty, Thelma, everybody, when they saw it, loved it so much transcribed it into into the script. So um, I feel like if you are a non-native filmmaker working with native subject matter, allow for that to happen. Your project is going to be better. But also please seek out native filmmakers in the stories that we tell. There are so many of us and so many more of us that are forming. You'll get a more nuanced, um, and you know, I feel like we're past the point where people think that bias for us is only for us. Audiences catch up. It's like, I don't know if it's caught on in the UK as much in the States, but the show Reservation Dogs really, really demonstrates that. It's been named like best show on a number of lists, and it takes place from a very insular perspective, from a native perspective, 
and a bunch of kids living on a reservation, but everybody loves it. Everybody who watches it feels like I've I've been this is what I've been looking for. This is the kind of humor, the kind of tragedy, the kind of everything I've been looking for. Oh, I was uh, sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. Hmm. Let's see. See what about him? See who's doing it. Hmm. Following from the previous question, and there was a slight hint of it in the archive that we saw, what I would love to see, and I don't know how much Mr. Scorsese and the entire production knew about uh, the Black Wall Street. There was a, you know, a very quick black and white sketch of it in there. Um, Bob said he learned about it making this film. Leo, I think, had learned about it a little bit earlier. And one thing that struck everybody, and I think Marty even has said he learned about it in the process of making this film. And uh, I mean, anybody who goes to Oklahoma and Tulsa, you can go to Greenwood Avenue and see what has remained there and how much the community has made um, that history known. And it's a very vibrant place. What struck these guys as, as uh, they were learning this, as the film was coming together, is it all happened in the same breath. And in speaking with local Oklahomans, it was very likely that the people who bombed Black Wall Street got in their little clan cars and drove north to Osage County and then kept kept it happening there. And it was actually in the moment where um, the when the house explodes, when Rita is, um, is killed, the impact and the blast of that when we were filming it, we shot that first. And then when we were blocking out the reaction of Molly when Ernest is coming home, we were in a real house. A lot of our, our sets were constructed so they wouldn't have had functional like like basements. But Leo and I were just sitting there a little bit troubled by how we were gonna get this because it didn't feel dynamic just walking into the living room and having everybody there waiting. So asked me where do you think they would go? And immediately it just like, well, where would we go if we thought we were being bombed? Because that just happened. So then in the moment, we realized there was a basement. We decided to put the family down there. And then we asked Vera, um, Norma, Norma Jean, the actress who played Vera, to, to say it, you know, state it for the audience who maybe didn't catch that comparison. It's like, it's just like Tulsa, it's just like Tulsa. Both of these histories, I will say now, there's a lot of legislation in the states. And in Oklahoma, House Bill 77 is attempting to intimidate teachers out of teaching these histories. Um, so the presence of Greenwood Avenue, of the, the legacy that it's left, the people who keep the museum going, that's not going anywhere. But teachers now, <laughs> the brave ones are still teaching it. The, uh, the ones who, you know, I, I, who don't want to lose their teaching licenses, they're, they're trying to figure out how they can talk about Black Wall Street and the Reign of Terror because they're both very, very much Oklahoma history. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that thank up. Thank you for your question. Um, I just wanted to thank you again for your honesty today, for joining Girls on Film, and for talking about, really, your amazing performance. We've been also privileged to hear from you today. Thank you so much, Lily Gladstone. Thank, thank you thank for you. having me. <laughs> 
Thank you to all our listeners who made it to the live recording at the Hamyard Hotel in London. If you want to hear more about upcoming Girls on Film screenings and events, including our awards, on the 20th of February, you can subscribe to our mailing list by emailing us at girlsonfilmsocial at gmail.com. This episode is in partnership with Apple Original Films and Killers of the Flower Moon. Killers of the Flower Moon is available to watch globally on Apple TV+. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, producer Heather Dempsey, assistant producer Charlotte Matheson and audio editor Jack Howard. Thanks for listening. I've been Anna Smith. I'll be back soon. You talk too much. <laughs>